0: Good morning, Grace Point. Uh, if you want to start a pool now on how quick I will trip over this cord, um, you can make some money today, and that'd be fun. Um, it is so great to see you. Last night, I just finished up dinner, and we we're cleaning up, and I got a missed call from Nathaniel, and then he texted me and said, hey, kind of important, can you call me? It's like, sure. I had no idea. And then he's like, um, you know that trailer where all of our stuff is? not where it's supposed to be. It's gone. Um, And right about that time, so the question was, are we still going to gather tomorrow? And my immediate response was, "Um, absolutely. Now let's figure that out. And that figuring, uh, our students are welcome to go ahead and be dismissed too. I saw you looking, wondering if we were going to do that today. Um, And so uh, I just want to say thank you to some folks because from that first conversation with Nathaniel, we started pulling in everybody that it would take to pull this off today. Our production team, our band, Lisa and the children's ministry. And and we just started having a conversation. What does it look like for us to pull this off with none of our stuff? And it was so, so beautiful because nobody batted an eye. They were all like, yeah, we're just gonna do this. Um, And outside of missing some of the accoutrements that we usually have, banners and whatnot and tables, um, they pulled it off. So Can we just thank all those people? Um, I like to think that somewhere right now there's uh, the people who pulled off this heist and they're like, like, like the Grinch, they're listening to see what they'll hear. And right about now they're like, it came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. Like that's what I hope is happening somewhere right now. Um, so uh, we're going to jump right in and we're going to continue our unconventional wisdom series today. We're going to talk about politics and religion, so nothing controversial um, before we do that, let's just pray together. God, we are grateful that what it is that makes up Grace Point can't be contained on a trailer. Um, and even when that stuff is absent, this community is present. And it's present in this room, and it's present because Grace Point uh, it is us. It's all of us. And it's not only us, but it's the folks around the country and the folks around the world who uh, regularly engage with our community online. And we do all this together, and we're grateful. We're grateful that we gather today, and we're lacking nothing. Um, We ask that uh, today you open our minds, that our hearts are open, um, that we um, perhaps will receive the challenge of this topic, this idea of politics and religion and how they perhaps uh, live together. We open ourselves to that. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said Amen. So we've been talking for several weeks now about conventional wisdom and unconventional wisdom, and of course, wisdom is, is about how to live. When you talk about wisdom, you're talking about how we live in the world, how we organize ourselves, how we um, seek to to create in the world. Uh, and so, conventional wisdom is sort of what everybody knows. It's uh, the thing that everybody takes for granted. Unconventional wisdom is sort of wisdom after wisdom. It's alternative wisdom, subversive wisdom. It asks the question: Is the, is the way we've thought about this really that maybe? the best way, or actually is the way we've thought about this stuff maybe even uh, hurtful and toxic in some ways. Um, but I just have to tell you, I've been I've been doing sermons for 20 years now. I've been pastor for almost 20 years now. Uh, I started when I was three years old. It's been a great journey. Um, and uh, of all the things I talk about, um, I've talked about in 20 years and all the sermons I've given, uh, the, the sermons that have received some of the most... Uh, pushback, the sermons I've gotten the most uh, excitedly heated emails about, the sermons that I've been met in like the lobby on the way out with uh, constancy consternation, that's a nice way to put it, uh, have always been sermons where somebody would say, it seems like you dipped into the political. It seems like you said something that wasn't just, like you didn't stick to the Bible, you got into politics. Um, And I don't think, I actually just to let the cat out of the bag, I don't think it's possible to get into the Bible without getting into politics, and hopefully that'll make sense in a minute. Uh, So first, just a little bit about language. Uh, The word politics comes from the Greek word politica, which comes from the Greek word polis, and the word polis means city. So politics literally is about the affairs of a city. Uh, So you can think about it like it's about the affairs of community. So politics is about how we organize our common life. Um, So whether we we know it or not, whether we like it or not, we have a common life together, right? We all live in the same country, live in the same state. We have a common life. And in that common life, there are all sorts of things that happen. So we have to ask questions about how are we going to organize ourselves? How are we going to spend our money? How are we going to make sure people are included or who are we going to exclude? All that stuff is a conversation about politics. So you can't talk about how the world is or should be without dipping into the realm of politics, right? Does that make sense? So the minute you say the world should be blank, that is a political statement. And even if you're talking about it in terms of your own religious conviction, like God dreams that the world would be blank, you are still talking about politics because the world is run a certain way. And when you offer an alternative way that the world should be run, you have dipped your toes into the pool of politics. And I think if you go to the Bible, what you'll discover is that from cover to cover, it's a political text. It's a text of people interacting with the culture and context of their day, interacting with the power brokers of their day, interacting with the empires of their day. And often they are being oppressed by that empire and often they are saying, this needs to change. Everything needs to change. We need a new power structure. We need a new way to organize the world. We need a new way to, uh, to divide up our, our common um, funds. We need a new order in the world. And so that's throughout the pages of scripture. And there's one particular text when people talk about politics and religion, and it's sort of when they feel like they've got you, like, uh, we got a gotcha text. This text is uh, often known as, how many of you know just the line, uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? How many of you have been in a conversation about religion and politics, and somebody says, well, Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and God's what is God's? So what does that mean? It means that you give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, you give God what belongs to God, you keep church and state separate, right? How many of you have heard that interpretation before? Yeah. And so I want to talk through this text. I want to ask some questions about what may be going on in it that we don't actually see. I don't know if you know this, but probably none of us in this room were around in the time of Jesus. I mean, I don't want to to assume. But I'm guessing that this is a long time ago, and it was in a different part of the world. And the world was different then, and the context was different then, and the culture was different then. And so when we enter into the stories of the Bible, we often enter into them as we, we always enter into them as we are. We talked about this last week. We just dive in as we are, and we, we really often don't ask those questions. We have blinders on. So I, I want to ask some questions about this. Now, to give you context, it's in Mark chapter 12, um, and I think it's on uh, gracepoint.net slash Sunday if you want to follow along. Those slides should be on there. Um, But in Mark 12, here's what's happening. Jesus in Mark 11 has just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it was a essentially, they call it the triumphal entry, but it really was a protest march. Jesus organizes a protest march. And around the same time that the Roman Empire would have been sending their officials in during Passover, which was this time of liberation, a time to remember that they were slaves in Egypt and had been set free. So what does Rome do? They send their military to town, so just in case they have illusions of liberation, they'll be reminded of what Rome does to people who have illusions of liberation. They crucify them. So around the time that Pontius Pilate would have been riding into town on a war horse with soldiers and armor, essentially riding into town with tanks, on the other side of town, Jesus rides in on a donkey. Like, I'm trying to get a modern, like somebody's riding in in a tank and the other person's on a Vespa. Right? Like this sort of, it's a lampoon. It's mocking power. It's saying, you think that's powerful? Because when you ride into town on tanks and a show of force, do you know what that really is? It shows deep, deep insecurity. Right? Because people who flex their muscles are the most insecure human beings you will ever meet. Because they have something to prove. And Jesus rides into town saying, really? This is what you're doing? You think this makes you tough? You think this proves somehow that you're in power and in control? It seems like you're really out of control. And then Jesus, because this is what Jesus does, he ends up entering into several controversial discussions with the religious authorities and their proxies. So he ends up being in all sorts of debates and all sorts of discussions. That uh, This week for Jesus, I mean, obviously he dies at the end. Spoiler? Sorry if you didn't know that. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the rest of it. I'll just leave that. Um, He ends up being crucified at the end of the week. So um, I always think about this Holy Week uh, as being a time when they're living in a powder keg and giving off sparks, right? Like it's just a conflicted, uh, heated time. And so in Mark 12, he's into all these discussions and debates. Uh, They, and the they here at the beginning of the text would be the religious authorities. They sent some of the Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap him in his words. Now, to understand this, Pharisees and supporters of Herod are people who hated each other. Like, in in the context, it would be like saying, so they got together some Democrats and Republicans and sent them to talk to Jesus together. Right? They would be fighting with each other. But yet, their concern about Jesus is the thing that unites them. It's always fun on Facebook when you put something up there that everybody wigs out about. You know what I mean? Like, everybody's upset. Democrats and Republicans, people who are still voting for Nader, like all that. Like, it's really, really, some of you have no idea what that means. So I'm, <clears throat> uh, and the reality, like, that's, that's Jesus, right? Everybody is uncomfortable with Jesus and the things he's saying and doing because he's questioning the very power structure. He's questioning the very way the world is run. So they send some people, uh, these two groups of people who didn't like each other to trap him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher. We know you're genuine and you don't worry about what people think. You don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. Jesus, we know you tell it like it is. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Right? Now, law here is not a reference to Roman law. It's a reference to Jewish law. It's a reference to the first five books, Torah. In Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are 613 commands. Um, And the question is, is it permissible for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this is where we lose the story because we don't understand what's being asked. So if you were to talk about the 1770s in New England uh, and you were to talk about taxes, what would you be talking about? You're not just talking about taxes, right? You're talking about tea parties, You're talking about dumping all that British. So it's when you ask the question in 1770, should we pay taxes to the crown? Should we be paying taxes to Britain? That's a different question, isn't it? This is not a random question about taxes. So in Jesus' day, in the year six C.E. six, uh, there was a revolt. And the revolt uh, happened in Galilee, where Jesus was doing a lot of his work. And this is before Jesus was doing his work. But there was a rebellion, and the Romans came in and crushed it, and over 2,000 people get crucified as a result of it. Like, it's a major. So when they ask a question, should we pay taxes, this is not just, hey, just random question, coming from a real genuine and honest place, just want to make sure we're doing what the Lord wants. Should we pay taxes? No, this is, Jesus, where do you land on the discussion of Does our law permit us to even recognize Caesar as our ruler? Because if we recognize Caesar as our ruler, we have to pay him taxes. And if we pay him taxes, we're somehow in violation of the commands of Torah. So what do we do? This is a classic no-win situation. If you're Jesus, there is no good answer to this question. If you say, yes, you should pay taxes, you're a sellout. And all the people who saw him as embodying the kingdom of God, which was an alternative social order, Not going to heaven when you die, but a different way to run the world, a different way to live together, a different way to organize our economics, a different way to do everything, to share our food. If you are Jesus and you say, yeah, we should pay taxes to Caesar because if we don't, we're going to die, then you're a sellout. And all the people who'd been following you and trusting you and listening to your message and orienting their life around this message and people who wouldn't share their food before but are now like, hey, I've got enough food. We can, we can, everybody can eat. Like those people are going to bail. But if you're Jesus and you say, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar is a fraud. You know what happens to people who don't pay taxes to Caesar? They end up dying on a Roman cross. What's interesting is there is an accusation during Jesus' trial in one of the gospels that is lobbed at him that he advocates not paying taxes to Caesar, which ultimately it's treason. Right? It's rebellion. And so Should we pay taxes? And Jesus recognized their deceit and said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a coin, show it to me. And immediately they start digging in their pockets for a coin and they pull out the coin. Now the coin, and there's a picture of it on on the slides uh, online, the coin would be a Roman denarius. It was the day's wage for a peasant working person. So if you go put in a whole day's work, you get one denarius and on that coin, There would be on the front a picture of Caesar's head. And on the back, there would be the goddess Pax, which is peace, symbolizing Roman peace, that Rome brought peace to the world. And they did it through killing everybody who disagreed with them. Uh, There was actually a a historian named Tacitus. He was Roman. He said, uh, they make a desert and call it peace. That foreign policy still exists. You just kill everybody who disagrees with you and you call it peace. Uh, And so on the coin, there would have been an an inscription around the head of Caesar who would have been Tiberius at this point. And here's what it said, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So Caesar Augustus from the Christmas story dies, Tiberius becomes Caesar, and now he's the son of the divine Augustus. If you're the son of the divine, what is another way to say that? Son of God. Have you heard that before? You heard that language before? Applied to someone else? Son of God. Tiberius is the son of God. Tiberius is divine. And he says, okay, show me a coin. He doesn't have one. They pull the coin out. They hold it in front of him. Tiberius' head, his inscription on the coin. And Jesus says to them, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. His reply left them overcome with wonder. Now, here's what's interesting. Again, Jewish law, Torah, there is in the Ten Commandments a command against making graven images. What is a graven image? A coin with Caesar's face on it is a graven image. So when Jesus asks them, the, the, the religious purists, Show me a coin. And they pull one out of their pocket. Jesus is like, what? <laughs> you know, like, like, got ya, right? So they're there to trap him. And what does he do? He turns it back on them. I, I just would love for him to have just said, "Why well, you got a coin. Are you not aware of the command against images? So they prove, first of all, that they're not genuine, that this is all a ruse. They're carrying around Caesar's coin in their pockets. And Jesus doesn't have one. He's not participating in the system. uh, And they are. And so he says to them, whose image? Caesar's. Whose inscription? Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's. So people often interpret that as what he's saying is the coin belongs to Caesar. So you pay taxes to Caesar. Whatever else belongs to God is God. So you give that to God. But here's the problem. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and everyone in it. So when he's asked about whose coin, whose image this is, it's Caesar's image. But what belongs to Caesar? I think if you would have followed Jesus, excuse me, Jesus, you know, like like a reporter would do, like he's done, and like, wait, one more question, one more question. What belongs to Caesar? I think Jesus would have come back with this: absolutely. Nothing. Because Caesar is made in the image of God. And you are made in the image of God. So everything that exists belongs not to Caesar, but to God. It is a brilliant way for Jesus to challenge a corrupt system. That was keeping the very few, the top 1% to 3% living really well and the rest of everybody else literally starving to death. It's a way of challenging that and saying, I'm not going to give you the sound bite you want. I'm going to make you think about it. And when you think about it, number one, you're going to be reminded that uh, actually you have the coin and not me. And that nothing belongs to Caesar and everything belongs to God. This is a brilliant, Jesus is really brilliant in the way he engages this. And here's what's interesting this is not the only political issue Jesus digs into. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus gets asked a lot of questions. He gets asked a question about divorce. And Jesus' reply on the question of divorce has been used to shame and humiliate and exclude people throughout history, right? Throughout Christian history, people have been really mistreated and excluded. Uh, based on Jesus' answer on divorce. But here's the thing. When Jesus gets asked about divorce, it's not a moral question or an ethical question. It is a political question. Because in Jesus' day, Herod had just divorced his wife and taken his brother's wife and married her. There was this guy named John the Baptist who used a lot of hair product and lived out in the the wilderness. Uh, John got arrested for this message. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod decides, this is bad PR. We got to get rid of this dude. And John gets executed for his critique of Herod's divorce. So when Jesus gets asked a question about divorce, they're not saying, give us your moral take on divorce. Here's what they're saying Do you want Herod to kill you too? Where do you land on the Herod divorce situation? This is a completely different discussion. When Jesus teaches people to pray, give us today our daily bread. It is a political ask because people weren't getting their daily bread. So asking for daily bread is saying we need a new order where everybody has enough to eat. And if that's not gutsy enough, in his first sermon in the Gospel of Luke, listen to these words. He, he sits down, unrolls a scroll, and reads these words from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me, has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll and he says, this right here, what you just read, it's happening. And when you start talking about release of the prisoner, good news to the poor, freedom for the oppressed, that sounds a lot like politics, right? Jesus is engaging in an alternative vision for the world. It's the same thing we engage in anytime we talk about things that matter, right? So this is why in a Christian community, it should not shock people when there are reprehensible things happening in the world. It should not shock people that Christians have something to say about it. It should not be controversial to say that families should not be separated, It should not be controversial to say we don't keep people in cages. Right? It shouldn't be controversial to say, you know what? A living wage is something that people need. It shouldn't be controversial to say that nobody should go hungry in this world when there's enough food for everybody. So I just want to share a few things about how I've come to think about it. Um, Oh, oh, by the way, the the titles, right? Son of God, Caesar. Uh, Caesar was savior. Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the one who brought peace on earth. Do you see what the early Christians did? They were going, gosh, we need to talk about Jesus in a certain way. Let's just take those titles that were Caesar's. It would be like today saying Jesus is president or Jesus is commander in chief. And how would Jesus organize the world? Right? So a few things about um, how how. In the Jesus way, we, we can engage in politics in a way that I think is not just what you see on TV and not what just happens when people have arguments at Thanksgiving about it. I think there's a better way. And First, I think in the Jesus way, the politics are prophetic and not partisan. Uh, how many of you, when you hear the word prophetic, you immediately get some sort of like, like ooh, anybody? Like, we're talking about the future. We're talking about the end of time and locusts with lion heads on them and all that kind of stuff. Some of you haven't read the book of Revelation. Just steer clear. You're good. It's not, it's not needed right now. Um, and yet, here's the reality. The word prophet in the Bible does not mean somebody who tells the future. Doesn't. A prophet is somebody who speaks for God. It's a person with fire in their bones who says, there's an injustice, there's something going on in the world that needs to be changed, and I'm going to say the thing. I'm going to say that God doesn't like your musical festivals. He doesn't, God, she doesn't like your worship. What she wants is justice. You can't worship God and oppress the poor at the same time, right? That sort of message. Um, There are people, like I think Martin Luther King Jr., for example, was speaking as a prophet in our culture and in our context, right, in in the 60s. So when we say prophetic, we mean saying something that is challenging the way things are because of a deep conviction that the world should be run better. I was at Wild Goose a couple years ago, and I got to hear uh, Dr. William Barber Uh, give a sermon. How many of you heard William Barber before? And he literally finishes the sermon. I'll I'll never get to do this because I'll never do this kind of sermon where it like calls for it. But at the end of it, he just literally went, dropped the mic and walked off stage. And it was the coolest thing I've ever witnessed in my entire life. Uh, And one of the things he said in that sermon that was so beautiful and challenging is he said, we have to decide, this is a paraphrase, we have to decide if we're going to be the priests of the empire or prophets of God. Because you can't be both. You you, you can't sell out everything to support the empire and to support the status quo and yet be in on the thing God is seeking to do in the world. Because the thing God is seeking, whatever the word God means, right? That's a big word. We could talk about that. But whatever that word means, it's a reality that's pulling us toward a more just, compassionate, and equitable world. And you cannot support, uh, blindly support an empire and also be seeking to create that reality in the world. Because what is good for the empire and what is good for the kingdom will never really meet. And so I think we have to be prophetic about it. We have to be able to say, this is not, we're not going to be partisan when we speak on politics from a Jesus way. We're going to make sure everybody is equally offended. Right? Because here's what we know. That no matter whose side it is, there is a better vision for the world. There is a vision we haven't seen realized yet. And we must be willing, uh, we must be willing to critique, we must be willing to cast a vision for that world that could be. I'll never forget, uh, Super Bowl Sunday, like three, or four years ago, I did a sermon on peace, which really, why does that tick people off when you talk about peace? It does, uh, and I did a sermon and I criticized um, President Obama's um, use of drones in that sermon. The most angry person I got was uh, the, uh, shocked me. The guy hated Obama. And he sends me this scathing email about how sad it is that I would get up and critique our foreign policy in a sermon when I should just be telling people how to go to heaven. All right, so I think we have to be able to, I'm, I'm going to critique whatever needs critiquing. And I want to I say this is a good thing, whatever, wherever there's a good thing. And I think we get so lost in these uh, echo chambers and these partisans like, no, no, no. We want to be a people who can see beyond that and say there's a world that needs to be born. And it's not going to be born without us. And it's not going to be born without a critique and a leaving behind of old ways of thinking about it. So that's first. Second, I would say this. Uh, politics in the Jesus way is about sharing power and not hoarding it. It's about sharing power not hoarding it. I mean, what you see in politics often are people who are hoarding power uh, and are willing to go along with a lot of things that you, I just, if they have a conscience deep down they're not okay with just to remain in power because there's only so much power to go around that if I don't have it, then what am I going to do? And what Jesus does beautifully, I, I, think about this. In one of the stories of Jesus' resurrection, sorry, I, blew, I, I spoiled the end. He dies and rises, guys. That's what happens. Um, And so at the end, Jesus appears to them, and he says this. He says, okay, I have all the power. Everything, the universe, I have the power, and I'm giving it to you, so go do some stuff with it. (laughs) Think about that. I have have power, and now I'm going to just disseminate that power through you. I'm going to empower you to go change the world. So politics in the way of Jesus is actually about empowering people not hoarding power from them. It's about recognizing that everybody has something to contribute, and what if we were to empower people to do that in the world? Third, uh, politics in the way of Jesus is not about winning. It is about healing. It is not about winning. Politics in the Roman Empire was about winning. And Caesar said that they were going to win like they'd never won before. You'll get that in the parking lot. And it was all about winning. Winning. Rome had this whole thing called Roman victory, and it was the thing that they celebrated. The goddess was Nike. She made shoes. Um, and it was all about winning, and it was all about defeating, and the way you bring peace is you just kill all the people you disagree with. And the way of Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 what if, what if there was another way? What if the way was that we, we, we were trying to heal the world, not just win, I just win. What if we were actually trying to heal? What if we cared about the people who disagree with us enough to not just want to defeat them, but to actually bring healing to the fractured relationships? That is hard work, right? That's why winning is easier, because it doesn't require the hard work of peacemaking, and it doesn't require the hard work of sitting down with somebody who's different than you, and it doesn't require Hearing a different perspective and not immediately lashing out, right? It's it's this challenging work of, my gosh, what if we actually sought to bring healing to the world and our relationships? I think this is one of the problems with the prison industrial complex in this country is we, we talk a lot about rehabilitation, but all we want to do is punish people. And that's not just true in how we treat people who have broken the law. We treat each other that way. And until we adopt a different mindset that says, what if we were trying to make space for the healing of the entire world. What would that look like? That is politics in the way of Jesus. It values healing, not winning. And then I would say this, politics in the way of Jesus is not a theory, but practice. I, I, I like talking about politics. I like talking about religion. I can geek out over that stuff all day long. Um, we do a lot of talking, right? We do a lot of talking about how things should be. The problem is we don't often do a lot of doing about how to bring those things into the world, Um, And so I I think politics in the way of Jesus is ultimately about that. When Jesus is confronted with 5,000 or so people who don't have food to eat, what does he say? Man, people should have food to eat. So where are we going to lunch? He says, okay, feed them. Feed them. Do a thing. Step into the situation and bring healing and bring hope and give somebody a full belly, right? Jesus has this very practical I'm going to do something about it, practice. And I I think that it's easy for churches to just lapse into the theory mode and talk about theology and that's fun and talk about theories about, and that's fun and talk about how the world could be and that's really important and fun. And yet there comes a moment when it's actually time for the rubber to meet the road and there's actually time to begin to get your hands dirty and to actually do a thing. And doing the thing is challenging because people, when you do something, may misunderstand you. Have you, seen, have you noticed this, that no matter how good your intentions are, that you say a thing, do a thing in the world, people will misunderstand you. They'll question your motive, motives, they'll question, and yet Jesus wades into it anyway. So the question we have to ask about our politics in the way of Jesus is how are we going to actually do a thing? What is that going to look like? When, when we live in a country that has a lot of issues facing us right now, what does it look like to be a person in the way of Jesus and enter into this discussion about immigration? What does it look like to be a person following the way of Jesus and enter into discussions about how we treat refugees and asylum seekers in our country? What does it look like to talk about how we treat people who have um, gone to prison? What does it look like to talk about how we deal with the issue of white supremacy, which regardless of what they're telling you on the news, is a big, 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 big problem in this country, and we have to deal with it. What are we going to do? Those are Jesus' questions. Those aren't questions for the realm of politics. Those are questions for the realm of life. And politics and religion are completely enmeshed and inseparable. Because I think the way of Jesus isn't saying, how do you get out of this world? I think the way of Jesus is saying, this world has some issues and there are ways to bring hope and healing to the world. There are ways so that no one in this world goes to bed hungry. We can do that. This is why when you hear a political candidate who has some sort of hopeful vision for the world, that resonates. Because somewhere deep down in that, there's this understanding that to be Jesus' people are to be people who hold that hope for the world. That the world isn't really going to hell in a handbasket. That the world isn't hopeless. That all is not lost. But that there is a world waiting to be born. And it will not be born when people debate it to death. And it will not be born when they argue it or when you finally convince those people on Facebook that you have been right all along. And they come weeping and gnashing their teeth to repent to you that you've been right all along. Right? That's not going to change the world. What's going to change the world is people with conviction who then enter into the pain of the world, enter into the mess and muck, enter in and are willing to pay whatever cost comes with it the things that have mattered in this world have always come at a cost. So the question we have to ask is, as Jesus' people, are we willing to enter into that and are we willing to bear that cost ourselves? Are we willing to see the vision for a world of justice and compassion and equity and are we willing to seek to bring it about through our lives and through our relationships and through the way we engage in the world? Are you with me? So next time somebody says to you, oh, man, politics and religion don't mix. Be like, false, they do. Like, that's all you have to say. False, they do. Because everything, everything about how this world runs is political, and as people of a Jesus way, everything about how this world runs for us is deeply, deeply spiritual. Are you with me? Let's pray. Oh, great, thanks. Let's pray. God. We're grateful for um, a tradition that calls us to act. We are grateful that the world with all of its problems is not beyond hope. And that the things that face us now in this world, whether it's climate change, white supremacy and racism, poverty, hunger, people being treated inhumanely, that within our tradition are the seeds of hope, that those things do not have the final word. Our tradition envisions a day when every tear is wiped away, when every belly is full, when everyone left out from the party has a seat at the table. May we be willing to do our part to step into our role in creating that world. May we be willing to get into the mess and muck of politics and religion and relationship. And may we find that that's where actually that's where the life is. We're grateful, grateful for this community that holds this this tension so beautifully. We ask this in Jesus name everybody say amen